think we all know the pedigree of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology when it comes to bird resources, and we at the ABA are excited to partner with the Cornell Lab of O to offer an amazing deal exclusive to ABA members. ABA members can now get a 15% discount to any new subscription to Cornell's amazing new Birds of the World resource that is applicable for three years. Birds of the World is a powerful resource that brings deep scholarly content from four celebrated works of ornithology into a single platform where birders can answer all their life history questions for every species of bird they could want. It is extraordinary. You can get more information at birdsoftheworld.org. Well, and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm your host, Nate Swick. I promised last week I would tell you a rarity finding story, so I will do that, dear American Birding Podcast. I never thought it would happen to me. You know, in lieu of telling the tale to friends over a drink in these pandemic times, I will tell it to the podcast audience. So here we go. My family was staying at Kitty Hawk in the Outer Banks. I already had some pretty good birding, especially sea watching. We had one day where the weather was kind of nasty, but there were lots of birds moving over the ocean and really big numbers, lots of scoters, loons, gulls, cormorants, gannets, even a couple of Jaegers, which are always fun. But I was interested in land birds, mostly because of the time of year. Late November, early December, typically a great time on the East Coast for kind of wayward passerines. Um, and I wanted to try and interact with some of the cool finches that have been reported in the area. So one morning I got up, I went up to the town of Duck, which is a little bit north. They have this cool Soundside boardwalk park that can be a nice trap for passerines in migration. So I get out of the car, start walking around, listening for chickadees like you do. And pretty quickly, I encounter a flock of perching birds with the usual kinglets, snack catchers, and a northern perula. Put the northern perula in eBird, notice it gets flagged. That's cool. That was early days in December, so I assume it was one of those things that gets caught in the turnover of the months on the filter. Not a problem. Got some photos. Pretty auspicious start, right? So I'm walking around, and, and things are productive, but not like overwhelming. A lot of normal stuff around. Just sort of pleasant, generally pleasant birding. And uh, at that point, I just kind of walk right into an ash-throated flycatcher hanging out with an eastern Phoebe in a little area right off the boardwalk. So, all right, this is better. I should let people know about this one. I, I look at the bird, I get the photo, pull out my phone, message the states, group me, rarity, chat. I, I look up and the bird is gone, completely gone, disappeared, but that's fine. I got my documentation, began feeling like this was going to be a pretty productive day, if that is all I found. It's a legit B-level rarity in North Carolina. I usually get a couple every year. Uh, but still one of those birds you, you know you let people know when you find one. Things are starting to look up. My decision to go to the spot clearly was paying off. So I continue walking around. I don't really find much of anything. But on the lark, I decide to kind of check out this amphitheater that has kind of dense, dense stuff growing around it. Uh, it's under renovation, so there are a lot of boards and and don't walk here tape and all sorts of stuff. But I just wanted to, you know, make sure that I didn't leave anything on the table. Just cover all my bases before I head out uh, to go to another spot that I had in mind. So I'm walking around, you know, sort of frustrated at the lack of crossbills and grosbeaks when I hear this weird ticking call note that does not register in my brain. I don't know what it is. 
So I think, yeah, I'll, I'll check this out, even if it's like a weird uh, cat bird or whatever. At least I'll know. So I walk over to the spot, pish for just a second, and a bird pops up. I get my bins on it. Gray head. Yellow underneath. A lot of yellow. Wide eye arcs. Holy moly. Apologize for working a little blue there. McGillivries. I realize pretty quickly what I have. I pish a bit to get it to pop up again so I can take a photo. It doesn't doesn't work. So, and, you know, I text the group me chat because I know people are going to want to know about this bird. And it is at that point that I realize that there are landscapers nearby who I am I've not been paying attention to until now. And then they all turn on their machines like feels like simultaneously. The bird bolts. I let loose with a string of invective for which I am actually grateful for the clamor of the engines at work nearby uh, for the sake of the people sharing the park with me. And I, I can't find the bird. The bird is gone. So at this point, the first of the local birders sort of arrive on the scene, uh, Michael Goslin and Megan Baker. I have to admit to them that the bird is not around, sort of gesturing vaguely at the work group nearby. Uh, so we split up to look, and at this point, I'm starting to get kind of worried. I did not get a photo. I did record my initial thoughts on the, my phone's voice recorder, just in case I never got a photo, which is a practice I would encourage, by the way. So we get to work and start methodically kind of working this area on the boardwalk. And about 20 minutes later, they text. Believe me, it is the longest 20 minutes I've ever experienced. They text. They have it about 100 meters down the boardwalk. And I run down and find it. Yes, got the photos I wanted, bask in the joy of sort of finding something cool and more getting other people on it. So a good end to the story, even if I never got the finches I wanted. And as a postscript, I am now recording this about two weeks after I found the bird and it is still there. Dozens of people have seen it. Would it have been found by someone if I hadn't found it? Maybe it's been there long enough that you have to consider it, but I did find it and that feels good. On the show today, I will try to soften the blow of missing those winter finches by talking to Matt Young, the person who has probably done more than anyone to popularize typing Red Cross bills by call. He is the founder of the Finch Research Network, and he loves, he loves him some finch superflights. All that after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the second week of December 2020. Florida continues to clean up with Caribbean rarities this winter with the arrival of a ruddy quail dove, that's an ABA Code 5 species, in Key West. This account of this secretive terrestrial dove will likely represent the ABA area's sixth or so record, all but one of which come from South Florida, with the other record coming from South Texas. This bird has been very difficult to see, which is as you would expect of a quail dove. Some first to note, we think of barnacle goose and pink-footed goose as being pretty reliable in the northeast part of the ABA area, but they are both creeping southward. Virginia boasts its long-awaited first record of pink-footed goose in Charles City, Virginia. I believe this is the farthest south record so far in the ABA area. And nearby in the District of Columbia, a barnacle goose there represents that political entity's first record. To North Carolina, which has had a very productive few weeks in terms of rare birds, we have what appears to be uh, that state's first record of Hammond's flycatcher pulled out of a mist net at a banding station in Randolph County. I say appears because of the usual caveats surrounding vagrant and pitanax flycatchers, but hopefully measurements and all that stuff will confirm what many suspect. 
Notably, the day before, that same banding crew found the state's second Western-type flycatcher, that being the species pair Pacific Slope and Cordilleran flycatchers, which many think are due to be lumped. So that is a very productive banding station in the last week. And speaking of Western-type flycatchers, what is being called a Pacific Slope flycatcher, which, to be honest, is probably what all of these eastern vagrants are, was seen this week on Sable Island in Nova Scotia for a provincial first record. Audio recordings apparently match pack slope, but it's hard to say how reliable those are. I don't say that to dismiss this record or the discovery, only to make clear how difficult this species pair is. Uh, As I said, they may in fact be one species. That is a relatively short accounting of the many highlights for the week. As always, for a more complete look at all the rare birds seen across the U.S. and Canada, check out the ABA's Rare Bird Alert every Friday morning at aba.org slash rba, or you can go to our Rare Bird Facebook page at facebook.com slash group slash aba rare, or follow us on Twitter at aba bird alert. This winter, uh, 2021, is one the likes of which we have not seen before. It is a finch superflight year with boreal, grosbeaks, finches, siskins, crossbills, and more pouring out of the north and into places where birders can more easily experience them. This means that it is an incredible opportunity for us to learn about why these phenomena happen. And Cornell researcher Matt Young has always been one to have that conversation. He is a leading authority on red crossbill call types and now the founder of the Finch Research Network. He is with me to talk. Winter Finches. Matt, welcome. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me, Nate. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Yeah, so like how excited are you about this winter? <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I, I love finches. Anybody that knows me at all, I can kind of think, breathe, breathe, and uh, just around the clock, always thinking about finches and finch eruptions and crawl types and hoary red pole identifications and so <laughs> on and so forth. I mean, I, I helped the lab, uh, you know, in 99 uh, do the first winter finch eruption uh, survey. I was the project lead on that, and that was actually when bird source was around. I don't know if you probably don't even remember that. I don't even remember that, no. Yeah. Predated eBird. <laughs> yeah. Can't, I can't even imagine a time before yeah. eBird, honestly. <laughs> no, I know. A lot of people can't. I mean, it was kind of funny, the, the comments that were coming out while it was down. Can you talk a little bit about the the Finch Research Network? Like, where did this idea come from? What what do you hope to accomplish? Did you know ahead of time that this year was going to be a super flight year when you put it together? No, I didn't know. I mean, this was this has been in the works. Really, um, it goes back at least six years when we started throwing the idea around. The mm-hmm. you know the idea of this around, and it was actually Tim Spar has kind of been my right hand man for. A number of years, uh, Tim kind of was completely fixated on crossbills in that 2012 invasion when we had that huge Type 3 invasion that marched across the country west to east. And that was really the first time we kind of couldn't watch something like that in live time. Yeah. And, and, you know, and it was then it started to build up and Tim and I kind of would throw around ideas about the Finch Research Network. And then I actually dropped it in a conversation when I was co-leading the Victor Emanuel Nature Tour Guide with Denver Holt on an owl trip. Because, you know, Denver... Owls and finches, they go together. Yeah. <laughs> Peanut butter and, and jelly. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and he launched his, you know, Denver has his own thing with the Owl Research Institute. So I kind of dropped it to him and, he, you know, I said, what do you think of this? Do you think it has legs? And he thought, I, it, thought it had legs. So, you know, and I'm a little bit, you know, I'm actually collaborative at the lab now. I'm I did two stints there across 15 years 
I somewhat exited uh, the lab, but I, again, I'm still collaborative on a lot of different mm. projects there. Back to your original question. So it wasn't until, you know, I knew I was going to launch this thing. Uh, we had started working on the website last winter with uh, my, my main guy, main web designer, Patrick Franca in Germany. So this is international, the Finch Research Network. Mm-hmm. And we are trying to dive into the Western Palearctic crossbills as well. Yeah, it's a bit of a mess because there's been three different naming systems in th- in 20 years. You know, we've been lucky here in North America that Jeff Groth laid out this incredible monograph in the early 90s. You know, and it's been fairly straightforward and fairly stable um, as far as like the crossbow call types. But you know, again, I started as more of a, a more of a broad spectrum Finch person. So we want to we literally want to want to fund you know, research projects, student research projects. In fact, we have some things now we're hoping to fundraise around as far as like getting transmitters, maybe in the hands, buying a few transmitters and get them in the hands of Powder Mill uh, Avian Research Group Center down there. They're, they're studying wintering gross peak ranges. We're also interested in, in climate change issues. Uh, Jamie Cornelius, who's on the board of directors of the Finch Research Network, you know, it's been looking at this kind of winter survivability. We want to fund research projects for students, but we also want to continue this incredible public service that we, yeah. you know, have been providing with, you know, with recordings of, you know, typing out evening gross peaks and crossbills and identifying hoary red poles. You know, well, we're in this for the long haul. I mean, this is not, we don't want it to be just an advocacy group thing. Yeah. We sort of joked about, you know, before eBird, things were totally different. But how much has that sort of real-time monitoring of these eruptions changed the way you think about finch flights? You know, it's it's really helped. Some of these finches, you know, we obviously don't know a lot about them up in the boreal forest to some degree, but they, they aren't nearly as dynamic or complex of a system as crossbills. Yeah. So we need to get a better kind of monitoring system across the boreal for these birds. In fact, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in conversations with some scientists out there now. It, it really has changed things as far as ground truthing. Mm-hmm. All the literature I have poured over for years <laughs> right. on particularly craw- red crossbill complex. Um, yeah. Because, you know, you read in the literature, you know, small build crossbills, massive invasion, in old kingbirds, you know, kingbird is the journal for New York State, you know, and they would collect specimens during the course of the winter because they, you know, you get road kills with with finches in general because they, they kind of act as cold cold climate parrots. You know, they like to go to grit and they like to go to, to salt licks and so on and so forth. What has been great is, is that 2012 invasion, we were literally able to watch those type threes come across the country. And you could watch it on an eBird map. Yeah. You know, and there was enough people recording at that point. And then we saw it in 2017 with type fours and type threes again to some degree. This Eastern type 10, you know, it's really, really cool that for 15, 20 years, I've been watching these birds largely come out of the Northeast and they'll go down the coast, you know, into like Long Island and Cape Cod and down to Cape May and things like that. You know, these populations act differently. So uh, it, it's really, really helped in that way. What should birders know about this, this super flight, crossbills, finches, grosbeaks, whatever, 
that perhaps they don't know or isn't obvious on the surface? All right, so it, the super flight in the East is really a culmination of a few different things all coming together. We've had two really almost generational cone crops across various, you know, large portions of the eastern boreal forest in the last four or five years. That's led to high reproductive success of crossbills, white wing and reds, and also pine siskins. But there's also been this incredible, you know, growing spruce budworm outbreak across Quebec and Ontario as well. And all of the finches, people don't realize this, you know, crossbills do feed on insects. If there is a easily utilized, you know, protein-rich resource, yeah. every bird will use it. They're all opportunistic to some extent. But with evening grosbeaks and purple finches and even pine siskins, you know, they are spruce budworm specialists. And huh. so that's also bumped up the, you know, the population levels of some of the finches. So, you know, you kind of need a lot of different dynamics to come together that will lead to all of the finches flying. And that's really how you define a super flight is when all of the finches, you know, every single one of them makes a significant movement into, you know, the eruptive zone in, in parts of the East. Yeah. That's really interesting that the spruce bedworm connection, because I, you know, I live in the Southeast, so we don't see these finch super flights all that often. But although this one is coming down as far south as, well, heck, they've had evening grow speaks in like Florida and Alabama already. It's crazy. Yeah. You're in Carolina. You're in North Carolina. Yeah, 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 yeah. But when I so when I think of spruce budworm, I think of like a really great year for Tennessee warblers. Yeah, Cape May warbler, Tennessee warbler, Bay Bell. Yeah, exactly. And and I you know, like that following fall, we'll see a bunch of those birds. But uh, for finches, oh, I mean, it's 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 strange, and maybe that's just because my birding brain is sort of focused on my part of the continent more than other parts of the continent. But it's it's just interesting to see spruce budworms associated with these big finch flocks that I you, know, you usually think of as seed eaters. Yeah, yeah, they are. I mean, they largely are seed eaters. But yeah, you know, these uh, you know the grosbeak and purple finches, you know the numbers. You know, this is the largest evening grosbeak uh, eruption in about twenty years. You know, that mm-hmm. species actually has you know, experienced a 90% decline in the last 30, 40 years. And, uh, you know, this budworm certainly has led to high, higher population levels than we've seen in a long time. And yeah, I mean, it is a little bit odd if you haven't dove into the literature to think that, you know, budworm is, is something specialized, uh, you know, as far as feeding for, for finches. Um, but it's in the literature. I mean, it goes back to uh, some of the literature in the 40s and 50s. That's that's really what led to them breeding in the Northeast. The evening grosbeak was really not known to the eastern United States until the late 1800s. I don't know if you knew that or not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I sort of did. And I, I've always heard that sort of referred to when we talk about, you know, the eastern evening grosbeak, the population declining. And whether or not that an actual population decline, or is it sort of a reversion to the mean from the last, from the you know late nineteenth, twentieth century, late nineteenth well, century, I guess. Yeah. Well, you know, it's absolutely it's a it's a great point because you, you know the population numbers you could say were higher. So there was two really big budworm outbreaks. I know there was one from about sixty five to ninety, and then there was one from about. 40 to 55. So 1940, 1955 was when many of the northeastern states 
first documented breeding of evening grosbeak in the east. Then the bird really took off in that 65 to 85 or 88 uh, budworm outbreak. And then, you know, Canada, I mean, this is an important, you know, monetary crop for them, essentially, timber. You know, they started treating the forest for budworm. It somewhat knocked it down and kept it at bay. Now, you know, here's a silver lining, you know, that COVID has provided, which, you know, there's not a lot of silver linings about this thing at <laughs> all. We're looking for them, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Parts of, I think it was Quebec, parts of Quebec, they did not treat because of COVID. They huh. didn't treat the forest. So that budworm outbreak is going to continue to grow, and or should grow at least, and the population numbers on purple finches and evening grosbeaks should continue to grow, and even siskins should continue to grow over the next few years. You know. Wow. You, you're, yeah, you're going to get, you know, North Carolina is an interesting place. You're going to get it on the best finch flight since at least the 90s. Maybe, early, you know, yeah, since the 97, 98, this super flight is, uh, it's not on par with that one, but it surpasses the 2012, 2013 one by a little bit. Yeah, I remember, see, I remember the 2012, 2013 one because there was a, uh, uh, evening gross peaks were seen were heard as a flyover at my local patch and i was real ticked off that i, I didn't get it because i spent so much time there but you know how those birds are you just kind of have to be in the right place and lucky to recognize them when they go over uh but this year we've already seen flocks of them showing up on both ends of the state uh you know, know. The mountains and the coast which is where you'd expect these things to erupt into and so we're waiting for them to come into the piedmont where i live so very exciting yeah, 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 totally. You're you're uh, you're gonna see the best flight you've seen of finches in a long, long time. Uh, oh, that's good. My, I think my some red poles are gonna make it. I think there's a couple red pole. Oh, we've already had one. Yeah, yeah. The Siskin flight is just was ridiculous. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> you know, we we were talking about sort of the eastern part of the continent, and and to some extent, this this big super flight is sort of an eastern phenomenon. And you know, I don't know the reason because. Things don't work the same way in the West. The topography is different, so they manifest differently. But there does seem to be something going on there, too, even if it's more subtle. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, you hit kind of nail on the head, but topography kind of dictates these these uh, movements out West a lot more than they do in the East. You know, these Eastern birds that we get are largely pouring out of the boreal forest. So I mean, we, we only get this type 3 evening growth beak that moves across the boreal and down kind of the eastern, uh, you know, side of the continent in these big years like this. But in the last year, we, we have seen cast and sphinches certainly move mm-hmm. out onto the plains and in the, the Texas. And, you know, and there was that unbelievable record in Michigan, a first state record in Michigan. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, you got lesser. It's a good year for lesser goldfinches or Lawrence's goldfinches. They've made their kind of eruptive movements from California into New Mexico and Arizona and even I think there's a few I think there's a couple records in in Texas. There's also been a really huge uh, flight of type two red cross bills on the west coast. That's a call type that you don't get on the coast at all, really. Hmm. Um, it's you know it's kind of a bird that's most common in the interior pine forest. It's uh, you know a, kind of a ponderosa pine bird, but I'm not really a big fan of the whole you know, the single key conifer concept. I mean, there's certainly something there, but Crossbill's conifer switch. The thing with Ponderosa pine is uh, it, it doesn't produce nearly the reliable cone crop like lodgepole pine does. So 
Type twos move around the country, and they actually are all along the West Coast this year. Um, so that's another thing that's going on. And then, you know, there's a, a bit of a white wing crossbill and red pole thing that's also, you know, it's there's some birds that seem to be occurring in the interior West. So there's a, there's a lot of good stuff going on out west. And type one evening grosbeak. I mean, people that don't realize, you know, there's five different call types of evening grosbeak. They're not. It's not nearly as complex of a system as crossbills, but Type 1 really is the only one that is erupted out west. It moves all over the west. There was a record in Texas this year and, and uh, also one almost at the Mexico border. So it's uh, fascinating. You're, you're certainly getting in on some of this fun, but there are much more localized kind of events out there a lot of times. You know, and that's topography driven. We, we've been talking about, you know, types, type of gross beak, type of crossbills. Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of fascinated with this crossbill recognition model that you have on your uh, on the Finch uh, Research Network website. Yeah, you know, I I consider myself to be a pretty experienced birder, but even I'm a little intimidated by the crossbill call type thing. And anything that sort of simplifies that process is definitely appreciated. Can you convince you know maybe novice birders why you know making the effort to determine what call types of crossbills you're encountering is something that you want to do this winter? Yeah, so I'll give you two parts of that. So, I mean, it's it's these invasions and the ability to put in data quickly in eBird, you know, and handheld devices now have made recording that much more, you know, easily easier yeah. to do. And so popularizing and making it this less intimidating has been a big part of what, you know, all of us have been trying to do for the last decade or more now. To get to your second part, um, you know, so you have these call types, and it's kind of a bit of a Galapagosy finch thing going on in that. And I'm not necessarily, you know, saying that these birds are all going to be split at all. I'm not saying that at all. But, you know, you do have this kind of adaptive landscape, and call types know each other. I mean, we know this. I mean, yeah, you'll get some mixed flocks, but I mean, I was out last week. At my local patch, I got a place about 20 minutes from here. I've probably been there 12, 15 times over the last, I don't know, three, four, five months now. And I've recorded red crossbow call types ones, twos, threes, fours, and tens now there this year. Hmm. We had our first type four at this location, and it was so fascinating. I was out with Jay McGowan, and he had his gear, and we had this type four. And I was there with Zach Coda as well from Vermont. We had this type four fly in. And uh, it was it was pretty fascinating, you know. And this is an area that we had not had any type fours, but there's been hundreds of crossbills moving around this particular state forest. And the four flies in, lands up top of the tree at this four corners. It switches to its excitement call. It's given this excitement call for you know like three minutes. Eventually, a flock of seven type tens fly in. And the four then switches to its flight call. And so they're doing the flight calls back and forth, tens and four, and this one four over about five minutes. And it was almost like eventually the birds got to the point where they're like, well, you're not my kind. You're not my kind. <laughs> and the tens flew off in one direction, and the one four flew off in its entirely different direction by itself. And when you see that stuff, you go, all right, there's something going on here. You know, as, as you might know, or some of the you know listeners out there might know, uh, a few years ago, 
type nine red crossbill was elevated to species status. That's what became right. the caster crossbill. Now that's a unique situation in that, you know, Dr. Bankman, who I wrote the birth of the world uh, account for red crossbill, you know, he in the late nineties said to himself, all right, where can I find an isolated mountain range east of the Rockies that has lodgepole pine, but there's an absence of tree squirrels. Right. So tree squirrels drive cone evolution. And if you take tree squirrels away, you know, crossbills will drive the cone evolution. So what he was able to document there was in, you know, he found these birds in much higher densities than he had found red crossbill anywhere else. He recorded them. They sounded different. And then he started doing this mark recapture uh, project over the course of the last 20 plus years now. And what he was able to find was if you go and me- do the measurements on the morphology of cones of lodgepole pine in uh, the Rockies, you know, the tree puts more energy into thickening of the distal stalk ends. So when you're in a forest and you hear like cones dropping, that squirrel's basically biting off that, that stalk that attaches the cone to the tree. Um, you take the squirrel out of the equation and what he was able to measure, and again, it's small measurements, but it's just, you know, statistically significant. He was able to find that the tree then put in energy into the thickening of the scale. So make it harder, hard for the birds. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So then did this assorted mating study and found that there, you know, there were even though twos and fives, type twos and fives come into the South Hills regularly. He was able to see, you know, find that the uh, Castro Crossbill Type 9 um, was assertively mating at a 99% level. So, I mean, that's another thing that the Finch Research Network is very interested in. We're, we're, we have uh, 32 ARU units that are put out uh, in four different clusters in North America. And those are recording the birds that are passing over? Yeah, so they're recording, you know, they're autonomous recording units. You know, I put six in the Northeast, six in the Sky Islands, six in um, um, in the Western Great Lakes, and then some up in like British Columbia and Kodiak Island and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. So, the, you know, the idea is I've been watching this landscape for, you know, two decades, a little more than two, 20, 25 years now. And the, we put them out in these areas to kind of get at, Areas where I kind of knew there was a high density and diversity of crossbill call types. Because if you want to do any kind of North American, coordinated North American assorted mating study, um, you need to have an area that you can actually have a density and diversity of call types to know mm-hmm. if are they, are they truly picking. Are they yeah. yeah, are they breeding and are they picking like call type? Like because, you know, yeah. with like call type comes this ecological implied ecological specialization right. for a certain suite of conifers or a couple conifers in this kind of core zone of occurrence that they are found in year after year after year. Yeah. The recordings of regular birders uploading this to eBird or, or wherever or asking you about it, this, this helps figure this stuff out too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're all data points, important data yeah. points. And in fact, you know, Macaulay Library, I just checked this morning, is going to pass 10,000 red crossbill recordings probably in the next week or a few days. Uh-huh. By quite a bit, it is the most you know common species in the collection of recordings of any other species. Carolina wow. Red. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, Carolina Red, I think, is the next closest at like 6,000-something. 
Oh, they're very loud. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It does feel like this, like this perfect coming together of interests this winter. You know, it's a huge flight year. Birders are maybe more likely to stay close to home, you know, document this flight either in the field or at their feeders. Everyone has video audio recorders in their pockets. You know, birding has had this sort of growth as a pandemic hobby. So there's a lot of new recruits. It, it really feels like all the pieces are in place to get a lot of really good information about crossbills specifically and sort of finches in general. Yeah, no, I could not agree uh, more. I mean, we want, you know, the reason why we, call, we, we landed on the name uh, Network, which actually, believe it or not, you know, that was a, we, we kind of bounced around names for about a year and a half before we settled on that. And it was, you know, kind of an accident, unbeknownst to Tom Hahn, who was a, uh, a great Finch researcher at the University of, uh, uh, of UC Davis. Uh, he, he emailed me back and said, you know, in, in kind of parentheses, you know, network question mark, because he had kind of forgotten the name that I had told him about. And I'd asked him to be on the board of directors. And so we want everybody to be part of this thing. I mean, there are there are places for artists to uh, hobbyists and enthusiasts to citizen scientists like people just making recordings to coordinated field ornithology and academics. Um, and this was really, you know, on the website. I give a big O to. You know, the, let's face it, the Finch Network, the Finch Research Network started decades ago before I, we officially launched this thing. Um, and we officially launched it with this year's new Finch forecast done by Tyler Orr. But, mm. you know, really, the Finch Network was started by, in a lot of ways, you know, Ron Pitaway and popularizing Finches and making them you know, some, you know, let's face it, that Finch forecast is one of the more highly anticipated, you know, burning articles that come out for the year. Um, and then Ian Newton in the UK wrote a book on Finches in the 70s. So, you know, those two people popularized this uh, in addition to others like, you know, Tom and Bankman and myself. You know, I've certainly been trying to play a lead role in that as well. Matt Young is the founder of the Finch Research Network. He will help you identify your red crossbills. You can learn more at finchnetwork.org. Thank you so much, Matt. This is fun. All right. Thanks, Nate. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. Look, you know I'm going to do this. It's the end of the year. You will hear it from everybody, but memberships donations and a well-timed PPP loan have kept us going through this strange year. If we have given you any little bit of joy during this year of pandemic, there's no better time to pay it forward than join the ABA, give the gift of membership. You can get more information at aba.org join, or you can make a donation at aba.org gift. I want to make a special shout out to Jordan Chazen of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Tom Marzen Ryan of Cambridge, Massachusetts, Annette Kilinowski of Fletcher, Vermont, Paul DeFiore of Austin, Texas, Mason Gibbons of Charlotte, North Carolina, and James Chlaboyko of Winnipeg, Manitoba, all of whom recently joined or rejoined the ABA and noted the podcast as a reason. Thank you so, so much for that. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, who is inspired by the Finch eruption this year. He's dreaming about watching the raptor migration at Veracruz with swallowtailed kites and Swainson's hawks, you know, raptors with strong, bicolored wing patterns, which might be fairly described as a black and white superfly. 
Technical production is by John Lowry, who didn't realize that he had also seen a massive raptor flight until Jeff mentioned it, which I guess makes it a black and white super flight in hindsight. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley, who noticed this raptor migration while sitting at a busy intersection in what might be called a traffic light black and white super flight in hindsight. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, on Instagram at American Birding Association, and on Twitter at ABA. I Personally, I love birding from intersections, even if I do frequently forget to log my sightings in the moment. You might say that I'm a traffic light black and white super flight in hindsight acolyte. Questions, comments, corrections can come to podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. We'll be back next week. <laughs>